we are fighting just for our land and for our freedom. Nobody is going to break us. We are strong. We are Ukrainians. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was a week of intense drama on the international stage as the largest country in the world, under the whip hand of a maniacal president, waged a brutal military campaign against the largest country in Europe. By week's end, and after Europe and much of the world had mobilized to support Ukraine against the aggression of Russian President Vladimir Putin, it seemed clear that we are living through history. And when the dust settles, 2022 might take its place among other historical pivot points, such as 1848, 1917, 1945, and 1989. Since the invasion began, Ukraine has displayed a magnificent fighting spirit under the stirring leadership of President Zelensky. Russia responded with more brutal weaponry, the seizure of Ukraine's nuclear plant, the largest in Europe, and the apparent targeting of Ukrainian civilians, a blatant war crime. Hovering over this immediate warfare and the recent advances of Russia was the brooding question of... Then what? While Putin's endgame in Ukraine remained unclear, the war of Russian aggression, as we fairly can call it, resonated back in the States and fed into the narrative of President Biden's efforts to right the ship of the Democratic Party heading into the season of midterm elections. And the support among some Republicans, including the former president, for Vladimir Putin, akin to rooting for Lex Luthor to take down Superman, complicated that party's own political landscape. These thunderous events mostly drowned out an important week for the Department of Justice in its continuing response to the insurrection of January 6th. The department secured a guilty plea to the most serious charge it has brought, seditious conspiracy, and prosecuted its first jury trial against a January 6th defendant. Still, a filing by the January 6th Select Committee asserted that there may well be evidence to indict Trump on serious federal charges involving his obstruction of the peaceful transfer of power, increasing the already considerable pressure on the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland to bring a case against the former president and his circle. To take stock of what in the last two weeks has developed into the most consequential military conflict since at least the end of the Cold War, we welcome a fantastic panel, including an expert who only recently returned from reporting in Ukraine. And they are Congressman Eric Swalwell. Since 2012, Congressman Swalwell has served as the House Representative for California's 15th District. He sits on the Select Committee on Intelligence, the Judiciary Committee, and the Homeland Security Committee, and is also co-chair of the Democratic Steering and Policy Committee, which sets the caucus's agenda. Previously, he was a prosecutor for seven years in Alameda County, and he is the author of Endgame, Inside the Impeachments of Donald Trump. Congressman, thank you very much for joining. Of course, Harry. Thanks for having me back. 
Rick Wilson, or from his Twitter, the Rick Wilson, is a political consultant turned political writer and commentator. He's a co-founder of the Lincoln Project, a lifelong Republican. He was early to foretell the dangers of electing Donald Trump and has since become a sort of pro-democracy, anti-Trump crusader, and all the while a New York Times number one best-selling author. He's published two books, Everything Trump Touches Dies, and the recent Running Against the Devil. The Rick Wilson, thanks so much for returning to Talking Feds. Hey, Harry, thanks for having me back. And Aaron Burnett, the anchor of the nightly news program, Aaron Burnett Out Front, which airs weekdays at 7 p.m. on CNN. She is also the chief business and economics correspondent for CNN. Her extensive news coverage experience includes moderating the 2020 CNN New York Times presidential primary debate. Before CNN, she anchored two flagship shows for CNBC and her coverage of countless breaking stories around the world have earned her the sobriquet. I didn't make this up. The international superstar. She most recently was in Ukraine where she did unbelievably riveting coverage as war was breaking out. Aaron Burnett, we're so thrilled to welcome you back. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So we are now watching the hour by hour unfolding of the largest land war in Europe since 1945 with genuine implications for reshaping the geopolitical map of the West. I want to profit from this panel and our format to grapple with some of the bigger, harder, and more interesting questions apart from the hourly developments, including most recently Russia's seizure of the biggest nuclear plant in Europe. All right. It feels as if, after a courageous standoff by Ukraine in the first week, that Russia's military superiority might be beginning to dominate in the field. French Prime Minister Emmanuel Macron spoke recently with Putin, apparently at Putin's initiative, and came out persuaded that, as he put it, the worst is yet to come and that Russia wants to take all of Ukraine. So let's start with the $64,000 question. What is the end game here and when will it happen? And I guess include in there, does Putin even have an end game? (sighs) I wish I could tell you, Harry, that Putin has an explicable endgame, but I think the distance between the fantasy in his head of what the Russian army was in the past and what it is today has led to this moment where they're bogged down. He is going to resort to the most violent and extreme civilian casualty-directed strategy, and I don't see Vladimir Putin ever leaves Russia again unless he's on his way to The Hague. Mired in the past, Rick. Is the past here 1991, the end of the Cold War, or is it like 18th century Peter the Great? What is in his mind? I think his past is post-World War II, you know, Soviet army. There was a culture that imbued Russian politics with a certain set of beliefs about the overwhelming power of the Soviet army, of being able to throw as many warm bodies at an opponent as you needed to, to end the the battle. And he just doesn't have that anymore. I mean, these poor conscript kids in Ukraine, they're there from Russia who thought they were going on a training exercise. The shock and awe is all running the other direction now. Hey, you know, what's interesting too, when you think about it, 
obviously we've all been covering the story for months and watching the buildup on the border. Pretty much nobody right, expected that this would happen the way it happened. Certainly no one on the ground there did the day before and were in complete shock when it happened, as we saw. But when Putin handed out a letter, and the letter uh, was on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, I would encourage anyone who hasn't read it to read it. I mean, he goes back to the you know, late ninth century, talking about the ancient Rus and the history of Kiev and the great wars with Sweden. And he believes every word that he's saying about this, right? And, you know, you're hearing it now echoed from Macron. But to Rick's point, figuring out what his endgame is, you may be more at the beginning of what he defines as what he wants his legacy to be. And clearly there's no cost too great to pay. We're seeing that now. One general told me, you know, you don't move kit into a country you're not going to use. They've got thermobaric bomb, bombs in there, right, that suck the oxygen out of people. The reports now of barrel bomb use. They've got weapons that are banned by all international treaties. And they're all in the country. They're actually there. Now we're seeing what, he, what he's doing to civilians. But I do think that letter that was actually handed out to every one of those Russian soldiers is really important for people to see because it's a window into his mind that we obviously rarely get. And that's Rick's point, you know, with the illegal weaponry, the targeting of civilians that he never gets out except for the Hague. I mean, we have seen him, I think, downgraded on the world stage to now almost a sort of outlaw on the order of a Saddam Hussein or a Gaddafi. Well, well, Harry, this is how to lose your status in 10 days, right? In, yeah. in 10 mm-hmm. days, he went from a, I would actually say a first world leader. Mm-hmm. Yes, he has recently been, you know, in the G8 was kicked out, obviously, after Crimea, but he now enjoys the same status as Venezuela and Iran, and they are truly a pariah state. We have noted a number of the miscalculations that he has made. I I think one of the biggest ones, though, is that there would be any Ukrainians that would be a part of a puppet people's assembly or any sort of, you know, Vichy Ukrainian type government. I, I just don't see who would carry that out at this point. They've shown, you know, such a, a will to fight it. And I just wanted to echo how moved I was by Aaron's coverage, uh, her courage to go on the ground, but her ability to articulate to everyday folks what it's like to try and get out of harm's way as she tracked those convoys. That was incredibly helpful for us. But those were women and senior citizens who were leaving. The men are staying to fight and you just can't imagine how this is not a protracted insurgency once Russia is actually able to take over most cities. Exactly. So first here, here as to Aaron and really seeing the human cost on the ground. But yes, so he does actually establish temporary or ongoing military control, but what really violent and determined insurgency that he'll have on his hands. Thomas Friedman had a piece in the New York Times laid out three possibilities, this being one. The focus now is on, does he take military control? But there's the then what question. Then maybe some sort of, as he puts it, dirty compromise. But I think that's gotten less likely. I think the Ukrainians' likelihood of accepting what you would think would be a sort of minimum set of terms. And then finally, this ridiculous science fiction, but now tantalizing scenario where somehow this is the end for Putin and enough Russians sort of rise up that becomes a kind of Kremlin coup. I think they underestimated the Ukrainian people from the very start. I think they underestimate the fact that If one of the lessons we drew out of Afghanistan was never have a flank in a country you're trying to occupy with a supply line that goes, I mean, look, Pakistan bled us dry. 
in Afghanistan. Taliban could always go over the border. They could rest. They could recover. They could rearm, come back. The border of this guerrilla war will be on against a bunch of NATO countries where the flow of arms and people, they could bleed Russia dry. And at the rate we're going right now with the Ukrainians using relatively inexpensive Javelin missiles and relatively inexpensive stingers to decimate billions of dollars of Russian equipment, they cannot sustain the losses of T-80 and T-90, the brand new Russian frontline armor is getting whacked by people who take about a one-hour training video to learn how to use a javelin missile. Slingshot, basically, David and Goliath, right? Yeah, and we're flooding the zone. I, I spoke to someone from Raytheon who said, we're putting them in the boxes so fast to ship over there, the paint is still wet when they're put on the C-17s. And I mean, that idea that you're going to have Grozny Part 2 or that you're going to have some sort of manageable Russian occupation of Ukraine I think is a fantasy, which is why he's you know sort of rattling the nuclear saber and, and trying to come up with all these alternative realities of, oh, they're Nazis. Oh, they want their nukes back. Oh, all this. I think Putin is an old man disconnected from the realities. He's been in the bubble for so long. He didn't read this map correctly. He didn't read the society of Ukraine correctly. They're much more oriented towards Europe than the old Russia. They're a Western European nation now, right? Absolutely. I, I really thought about this, Aaron, when you were doing that coverage. We think of that as a sort of image of Sudan or Central America. But, you know, this is more like Spain or something. It, it's just stunning. Congressman, you seem pretty bullish on the sanctions regime. There's a real difference of opinion as from what I can see among those who say sanctions he knew they were coming. He can bear them. He doesn't give a crap about his people and the economy. And we're not really able to target the right people anyway. Yeah. The other line, which is, no, they're great. Economy in free fall, ruble down 30%. So I wanted to ask everyone's view about the efficacy of the sanctions, which is really what's on the other side. So he priced in that there were going to be sanctions. What I don't think he priced in was that Nord Stream 2 would fall so quickly that they would be thrown off swift in the manner that they were. And then just culturally and, and socially, the private sector putting in place their own harsh restrictions. It may seem silly to us that Hollywood is not distributing the new Batman movie to Russia. But if you are among the elites in Russia, that hurts. Having your gaming systems that your kids play on disconnected and, and not able to stream that hurts. And so I, I don't think he priced that in. And I would just say this to really applaud our intelligence community. Amazing. The fact that they were right every step along the way is Amazing. what I believe is the reason we were able to get Europe to go along with us. Because Europe had good reason after the Iraq war to question you know, our intelligence and whether we were beating the drums of war. But the fact that we fronted the false flags and that we said it was going to be an invasion and it was going to be a wide-scale invasion, that showed that we knew what we were talking about and that they could trust us to be partners. You know, I think that's a, such a really good point Congressman Swalwell just made. When I was at the Defense Department, we used to have this argument all the time. It's like, they know what we can do and they know that we know what they can do. They know what systems we have. They understand them. But in this case, the intelligence community was able to package in a very transparent way and an effective way so that the administration could put information out there that I would argue saved a lot of lives on the front end of this and also allowed the Europeans, as, as the congressman said, to look at this as a global challenge to democracy and a global challenge 
that they could get behind. I talked to a friend of mine who was a former senior advisor to Merkel. The first day of this, she said, I don't know. Maybe we can delay Nord Stream for a few days. I don't know. But obviously nothing's going to, you know, we're not going to pick the side of America in this. She goes, you just have to read German political culture. And a day and a half later, she's like ready to head to the border. (laughs) Just like, it was a fascinating kind of change that we let Europe take point. And Biden said something I think that is so very vital to understand. When he said, we will not cede an inch of NATO territory under Article 5, that I think gave the Europeans so much confidence that the Trump era of trying to be the mercenary force in Europe, like pay us some money and maybe we'll defend you, was over. I think that was appreciated. I think it's been a key strategic pillar of this effort. I want to go back for a second, though, to a big part of the what now, what next? And that is the refugee problem that Aaron covered so beautifully in all its human toll. We talk about this permanent insurgency scenario, all the headaches for Russia. There's a million people who have fled the country, likely millions more to come. What happens to them in the event we're in what seems like the most likely scenario of some kind of permanent insurgency? I'll say, you know, I didn't speak to any of them who thought that this was going to last very long. So they're not going out with the expectation that they're not coming back. And now they're looking, um, depending where they're from, at their cities, pictures of rubble. I mean, the, I think it's impossible for us to truly understand the the trauma and the anguish that they are experiencing. I also think you're right. Like you look at the population of Ukraine, right? It's a big country. It's 44 million, I think, right? And I'll be honest with you. I was there in the days leading up to this and they weren't leaving. They were going out to dinner, okay? You know, they just weren't. So when this happened, it was a seismic sudden shift, right? So then they start to leave. So we are just seeing the tip of the iceberg, just the tip of the iceberg. So let's just say you have 10 million refugees. I think that's very reasonable if this continues. And they're going into Western Europe. Some of them, by the way, for example, IT had been a great, huge area of growth uh, for, for Ukraine trying to transform it just like an agricultural, raw commodity country, right? So you have some people with those skills. But just imagine if you are a, a hairstylist or who knows what your job is. You're going out and where are you going to get a job? And you're talking about an extended period of time. Indefinitely, right? I think you're right. The impact that this is going to have, we can't even truly comprehend at this point with the raw numbers that you're going to be dealing. They want jobs. They want to go home. They want to work. This raw number is just way more than we'll be able to sustain that. This almost reminds me of like 1917 and the exodus of all the Russians throughout Europe. And these are well-trained people coming from a whole nother life. I mean, I ran into three doctors. Were they all women, by the way? Because I guess it's almost all women and children who are leaving, yeah? Almost all women. Now, again, we're leaving, but a couple of the men that happen to be doctors, you know, they're dropping their wives at the border, right? And they're going back because they're not allowed to leave. Some of them thought they could be more helpful helping. I met a woman who was staying because she was a doctor because she wanted to help. But I mean, yes, these are incredibly highly educated people in, in And not to be discounted, Harry, is that the refugees are going to a place in the world that has refugee fatigue, right? Great point. For the last 10 plus years, they've taken on millions of refugees and they're great allies of ours. But this is why I think we have to step up as well. And, And I believe in the next two weeks, you're going to see probably a $10 billion 
relief bill for Ukraine in military, medical, and humanitarian relief just so that we can do our part for a part of the world that is again being asked to take refugees of war. And I'm just thinking of it socially and culturally. You really often do have the fathers or husbands behind and then the mothers and children out. You know, what a human tragedy, but also what a policy mess. You said what's next. And I keep thinking about, yes, Biden said not an inch of NATO will be threatened. And that's the legal obligation that we have. But what is the emotional pull that brings us even more into this? What would it take for the American sentiment to be that we need to do more? Is it President Zelensky being killed? Is that nuclear plant actually radiating waste? Is it the further slaughtering of children? You can't measure it. It's not a legal doctrine. But what could Putin do that would draw in the American sentiment more in a way than just sending weapons? And and that's what I'm watching for as well. That's a great point. Or even just to sustain it. There's been such intensity and sympathy for Ukraine, but does it continue indefinitely? What about when refugee problems pose practical issues in Western Europe and the like? I certainly don't want to trivialize, but it's had an aspect of like a fantastic sporting event where the world is enraptured at the Ukrainians. But that's not the kind, I think, of sentiment that you can just permanently take on board. Let me ask about something that I think is a surprise we expect for Putin, which is the Russian people. So Ambassador Michael McFall says nobody is any longer in support of the war except for Putin in Russia. Other people say, no, he retains some loyalty. But there's certainly thousands of people who are risking life and liberty in protesting. What's the forecast for the Russian people themselves here? Well, I, I can't say, you know, they're, they've passed that law now where you could be in prison for 15 years if you protest. Certainly some of the people who protested that we've spoken to, they obviously are not willing to put their faces up. And, and you know, the kind of shutdown in social media that's happening there now. I spoke to people in Ukraine, you know, they have extensive family ties between the two countries, right? We all know that. But in two cases, they literally were the ones who told their families about it. Families weren't even aware. I was like, what are you talking about? There's some military operation, you're like some police thing. And they're going, Russia invaded Ukraine. And one woman said to me, and she said, and they would be back, Russia invaded Ukraine? And look, I, I don't know what the situation is going to be in terms of international media companies operating in Russia, even when this airs. But I can tell you that the sort of what we call man on the streets, when you go out and talk to people, there were a lot of people yesterday who were very pro Putin. Very pro-Putin stuff. Uh-huh. And they were willing to now. Were they just saying it because they thought they should say it? I don't know. It certainly didn't come across that way to our reporter there. So I think the short answer is we don't know. But to say that it's just some overwhelming sea change that they have turned, it would certainly not reflect what our teams are seeing in Moscow right now. To Cold War nerd for a second, there was a Soviet defector way back in the, I gosh, late 70s or early 80s named Viktor Rezin. He went by the name Viktor Savarov, but his name was Viktor Rezin. And he described one time in a way that really struck me that the old Soviet system was a crocodile and everybody's trying to hold on to the crocodile. And the army's trying to hold part of the crocodile and the KGB's trying to hold part of the crocodile and the party was trying to hold part of the crocodile. Well, these days, the sort of KGB part of the crocodile, that power structure that emerges from the intelligence services is Putin. And he's holding on to that part of the crocodile. And the army is still holding on to its part, but the oligarchs have replaced the party faction 
I think that pressure that's rising on all these people who want their lives in the West, who benefited mightily from this kleptocracy as they start to slowly break. Because look, if you're a Russian billionaire, you want to keep your girlfriend in Miami. You want to keep your yacht in the Mediterranean or the Caribbean. You want to keep your beautiful penthouse in New York. You want to keep your beautiful, gracious home in Kensington or Mayfair in London. Those folks, I think, are the weird valence here that will start to trickle into, and all the things we were talking about earlier, Russia being cut out of FIFA, Russia being cut out of F1 racing, Russia being cut out of everything, including the international cat competition. All these things, I think, will eventually, people can't BS their way past it anymore. They can't say, well, of course, we're just having a normal day. Our stock market's been closed indefinitely. We can't get anything on TV anymore. Netflix doesn't broadcast here. Disney movies aren't being shown here. The Xbox doesn't work. We can't do anything that a normal nation would be doing. They will eventually start to question that. And I think it will ripple down from the top. And look, a lot of these oligarchs are kind of folk heroes. And that's why their kids are influencers. You start kicking the daughters of Russian oligarchs off of Instagram. There's going to be a seismic shift in the country. <laughs> All right. Let's exit here with the largest vantage point, the world itself. So several people, I'm, Mark Fisher among them, wrote in the Washington Post saying, the war already has steered history in a new direction and is switching up 75 years of relations among some of the world's most powerful and wealthy countries. Is that overexcited rhetoric or when the dust settles, how, if at all, does it settle on a different world? It's redeemed NATO. I I think that's pretty clear. Contrary to conventional wisdom, I actually think it deters China. I think China cares more about Russia as far as losing international prestige and standing and being at the table. They want to lead the new world order. And they're seeing what happens to a country that invades a free people. And it's also making it uncomfortable for countries that want to kind of sit on the sidelines. And I think the biggest one is India that is also trying to emerge as a global leader. And they have now twice abstained and and they're feeling the pressure all over the world that they can't sit on the sidelines and they're going to have to choose. And China abstained too. So you're saying it deters them from marching on Taiwan, Congressman? On Taiwan. Yeah. Yep. I I think they're, they're thinking twice about whether they want to enjoy the same status. Now, the question, of course, is would Europe care as much when it's not at its doorstep about what happens in Taiwan and would they go as far in on sanctions? And by the way, we're not paying much here at home on the sanctions. If China goes in on Taiwan, we're all going to pay in a major way for economic sanctions. But I do think China cares about stature and its reputation more than Russia probably does. And they probably don't think it's very comfortable to be Russia right now. I think there's a potential if the West holds together and, and if we continue to bring people around the world into a unified opposition to the idea that might makes right and that you can crush a neighbor and there are no consequences in the modern world, if we can push back on that Putin-esque concept and break Russia on this, and look, eventually they'll get a landing strip. Eventually it will be some sort of spoken or unspoken deal basically with the oligarchs to say, you keep your yachts, you keep your houses, you get rid of him. It's a deal, by the way, I think everyone in the West would take in a hot minute. Mm -hmm. I don't care how corrupt and fabulously wealthy and how much they've stolen. You get rid of that guy and you're not going to have a system that's as fundamentally broken because it's not going to reflect how fundamentally broken Vladimir Putin is as a human being 
from his weird life and his horrible, crushing humiliation after the Cold War. Anybody that replaces him is not going to be possessed of the same Soviet Union 2.0 fantasies that he has. But, you know, there's also the possibility of the cleansing nuclear fire, which is not a great one. My sort of thought on it is I feel like there's so much that could come out of this. And and there's just that huge question, right, that nobody knows at this point, which is his willingness to engage with nuclear weapons. And and we just don't know the answer to that. I know that that plays into what role NATO is going to play or we say draw the United States in. I mean, that's what's holding NATO back. and, And we all know it. I think that's the great question. And when you're looking at a situation where something happened that's unfathomable and unimaginable and ununderstandable to anybody, and, and everyone is united in that, that lack of comprehension, then you say to yourself, well, if I totally got that wrong and I didn't understand that this could happen, well, then, then maybe anything could happen. And I think that's a big question we have right now that makes it so impossible to know where the dust is going to settle. There does feel to me on this one like there hasn't been in any conflagration since the Cold War, if not before, this feeling of maybe anything can happen. But I'm hearing basically all of us here say, yeah, this is a serious geopolitical event that goes so far beyond the, uh, I've heard other people say, let's not call it the Russia-Ukraine war, let's call it the Russia war or the war of Russian aggression. Yeah, Putin's war, that's right. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. And today we're going to be discussing family farms, or more particularly, what happened to the family farm, which is practically extinct, and what role did political and legal forces play. And to tell us about it, we're very pleased to welcome Evan Stevens-Hall. Evan Stevens Hall is a singer, songwriter, and musician, best known as the frontman for the indie rock band Pine Grove. The band rose to fame in 2016 with their critically acclaimed album, Cardinal, and they've released five studio albums so far. So here is Evan Stevens Hall discussing the mythical family farm. What happened to the American family farm? Large factory farms dominate both plant and animal agriculture in the United States. The bulk of our food comes from these massive agribusinesses. The mythical family farm is practically extinct. How did this happen, and what role did political and legal forces play? First, during the Great Depression, the federal government decided to help struggling farmers stay afloat by offering subsidies for low-priced, high-calorie staple crops like corn and wheat. The handful of agricultural policies originally shaped and enacted in this era has come to be generally known as the Farm Bill, a piece of legislation that has subsequently been updated and renewed approximately every five years, though its broad foundation remains largely the same. For instance, in addition to subsidies, the current Farm Bill includes crop insurance and federal loan subsidies, along with nominal nods to environmental conservation. But perhaps surprisingly, what began as a legislative fix to save family farms has ultimately led to their demise. Now, large, consolidated agribusinesses are the main benefactors of the farm bill subsidies, thanks to powerful lobbies representing them. The same few players raise animals sold for meat and grow the monoculture crops, mostly corn and soy, that make up the animals' diets. And among the many casualties of this monopolizing industry are family farms. The negative environmental impact of big farming is also increasingly clear, and existing laws are inadequate to address it. 
As just one example, massive feedlots for cows and pigs create toxic water and air pollution. And likewise, the need for massive amounts of feed for factory-farmed animals means big farm monoculture, which results in the erosion-based release of CO2. And yet, neither the Clean Water Act nor the Clean Air Act deter or prevent this harm. That's because big agriculture has established agreements with the government to pay moderate fines and fund research to avoid meaningful liability. The state of farming today requires a legislative solution, a move to supporting sustainable practices and small businesses rather than paying subsidies to the very multi-million dollar factory farms who are pushing family farms out of business. For Talking Feds, I'm Evan Stevens-Hall. Thank you, Evan Stevens-Hall. Pine Grove's most recent album, 1111, was just released in January of this year. You can listen to it wherever you get your music. I'd like to pivot here and think about Ukraine and other issues, but as matters of domestic U.S. politics. Everything happening all at once, and there seems not time to process it, but Let's talk Biden. Let's talk Democrats. Let's talk Republicans. So the president got generally good marks for the State of the Union, and the latest polls actually seem to reflect that. So did he make the sale? I would say it was a speech that said, look where we started in the depths of the pandemic, chaos domestically and internationally. Look what we've done, rescue plan, infrastructure. And then look where we can go. But acknowledging inflation and crime are a big deal. I love that he said, we are not going to defund the police. We are going to fund the police. It was the clearest statement from a leader in our party uh, at that level that just put to bed uh, any question about that as we go into the midterms. Joe Biden took on a lot of the Republican culture war BS and just judoed it and just threw it to the ground. When he did that, it was a marker that he wasn't going to play their game. When he talked about rebuilding the economy with revitalizing American manufacturing in the American heartland, he took on the idea that you could do that without playing the stupid, I'm going to have a trade war with China (laughs) stuff that Trump was so obsessed about. Boy, you are 100% 360-degree Trump critic, even down to that. That's excellent. Harry, Harry, believe me, I'm an anthropologist of the worst human being in the world. (laughs) I I have a catalog of critiques that I will never exhaust. (laughs) Um, But, and it also spoke to an economic vision that isn't just sort of progressive pie in the sky. It was nuts and bolts, which I think reflects very well on who Joe Biden really is as a person. It was practical. It felt solid in every way. It flew in the face of the Republican behavior that we expected of, you know, the screamers like Marjorie Taylor Greene and the nuts you know, on the floor. And then, and then the 700 Republicans who had various things to say afterward that were disconnected from anything but the culture war. And I thought, well, chosen nuts and bolts too. On the other hand, it's followed by, when does this ever happen? I guess I ask you, Congressman, three different speeches by Democrats (laughs) in response to the president. And it doesn't really feel as if the party has it together and a kind of basic strategy heading into the midterm. Is that wrong? And if it's right, what has to happen? Well, I, I was happy to see that none of those speeches made news. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's was, right. that was most important. Um, 
but look, we have stuck together. And I went into this Congress fearful that with such a slim majority, you know, one side would try and hijack a, a priority. And, and we saw a little bit of that on Build Back Better. But in the House, we stuck together. And it wasn't the progressives that were the problem, right? The reason Build Back Better didn't get passed was because mm-hmm. of the other side uh, of the Senate, but the other side of the spectrum. So I, I think we've shown remarkable unity with a 50-50 Senate and a plus four majority in the House. And does that extend, you think, to a sort of shared blueprint for how to approach, what to approach, what to emphasize in the next six months? Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. All right, yeah. <laughs> Harry, I think our weakness is uh, we're like a white delivery van that drops a bunch of shit off on your porch that you want and need and then drives away and you look out your house and you see the van and you're like, hey, who just dropped that off? Well, <laughs> it's the Democrats. They just didn't, they didn't put their logo on the van so you don't know who delivered it, which is why Republicans are so able and shamelessly uh, taking credit for it. And so if we can just put the logo on the van. And wow, that's good. I love that. Tell people what we did on the rescue plan, what we did for restaurants, what we did on infrastructure. I, I think we've got a shot. Well, over to the other side, you actually tweeted today about this intramural dispute between Rick Scott, who actually has the idea that the Republicans should advance an agenda and Mitch McConnell, and they seem to be going to war. I, I have to say the amount of popcorn in the world I want to see for a Mitch McConnell-Rick Scott fight is <laughs> is infinite. It would, it would cause corn futures to skyrocket. <laughs> Rick Scott is a very ambitious man who has wanted to be president since the second he decided to run for governor of Florida. He is the weirdest, strangest affect of any Republican politician you can think of, the strange hand gestures, the weird voice, the glaring eyes, the bald head. And I say that as a bald guy, he's just a strange cat, but he wants to be president. He believes this plan is a sort of Gingrichian, if I may coin that phrase, roadmap that will rally Republican and conservative voters to him. And it is a catalog of culture war greatest hits. Mitch McConnell's great strength has always been that he means nothing, stands for nothing, and is nothing. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. Whatever wins, wins. Whatever gets you home. He's from the Republican tradition of just win, baby. Say what you got to say. And he does not want Rick Scott to pin him down on a tax hike, which is one of the things Scott proposes. Nor does he want Scott to pin him down on a bunch of these culture war things that he doesn't think are going to be as effective you know, in, in states that are up this time, like Michigan. McConnell's radar is different. So he has dispatched Josh Holmes who is his incredibly powerful top aide, key strategist, one of the most powerful men in Washington, to kill Rick Scott. And I am here to watch the blood flow. With popcorn. You know, Aaron, so what do you think? And I want to even move back to a second to this great image of the white van, but the notion that the Dems, it's a not a substance, but a advertising, as it were, issue. It's amazing. If you had just looked at the infrastructure bill itself and the failure prior administrations of both parties to pass it. If Democrats had just gone for that and bragged about that and executed that, it was going to win. The problem is they get everyone focused in on the losses as opposed to the wins. But I think one thing that the Democrats really have to focus on is this great unknown, right? So you can talk about the great jobs numbers, and so far they've been great. We'll see what the impact of all this geopolitics is. But the wage growth hasn't, right? It's disappointing. And you've got this inflation problem. And I think the inflation problem we don't know where it's going to go. We know it's not good, right? But I can tell you some things that we should really be worried about. I mean, you just saw a 26% increase in oil prices in the past few days. 
in mind that Vladimir Putin is the one benefiting from that. He can afford to sell a whole lot less of it, get just as much money to fund this war and killing civilians. But you're also going to see agricultural commodities surge. Ukraine is not going to have a planting season this year. It's in the top 10 producer of pretty much every agricultural commodity you can think of, from sunflower seeds to wheat to barley. And that's going to have a direct impact on Americans as well. So I think we don't know how bad it's going to be, but this is going to be real pain. People are going to be feeling it over these nights. Uh, and obviously, at that point, as you come into the summer, you are going to have that midterm political overlay to what could be a really serious inflation issue. I think Aaron's absolutely right. And Harry, that's why I think, one, you have to acknowledge that inflation is real. And, and it's not just a Republican talking point. It's, you know, I do the grocery shopping, got three kids in diapers. It's real. It's costly. And so I think Biden leaning in and acknowledging it and then having some concrete ideas in the short term that can maybe attack it. And one of them, I think, would be to just suspend the gas tax. And, and some people in our party say, well, if you do that, the oil companies may not reduce the cost and the gas stations may still keep it high. And, and I, I don't care. Just like show people you're doing something rather than just admiring the problems. And so I think it's critical that what we do in the next couple of months to try and attack inflation, recognizing it's a global problem, we can't solve everything, but just show people who are feeling the pain that we're trying to do something and put more cash in their pocket for gas and groceries. I think that will give us a fighting chance for the midterms. That's a great idea. I mean, it's a terrific idea. Let's stay for a second with Aaron's point about Ukraine, but go over to the GOP. I think there's been a fairly strong traditional Republican wing of support, but there's the Trump Tucker, we love Putin view. Is this rift going to hurt the party? as long as the general support for Ukraine stays so strong. Well, I can tell you why the Republicans went so quickly from Vladimir Putin's dreamy to <laughs> we stand with the people of Ukraine um, because their pollster is an old friend of mine and they came out with some numbers very quickly. Ain't nobody on the side of Vladimir Putin except Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump, and a handful of other idiots. Those are big accepts, though, in, in your old party. That is a force, but... These guys are all who have elections this year. You can tell who stupid people are. Like J.D. Vance is like, I don't care about Ukraine. He doesn't look at the own numbers. There's almost 100,000 voters of Ukrainian extraction in Ohio. That's a big deal. The chair of the Ukrainian caucus in Congress is Marcy Kaptur from right? Ohio because she has that constituency. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, look, they saw the numbers, but here's what they're going to do. They will be rah-rah for Ukraine until it, it looks like there's a, a wedge or a hole they can drive through to turn this into Biden lost Ukraine. How did he do this? He's so weak. When they feel like people are getting bored or moving on to something else, they will turn this into an attack vector. They don't believe in anything except victory. You know, and you'll see some of them who actually mean it will stick around, but the majority of them will follow the perverse set of incentives that drive the Republicans these days. How do I get on Fox? How do I get on Fox so I can say I've been canceled? How can I say I've been canceled so I can send a fundraising email that says I've been canceled? And the hamster wheel spins and spins and spins. <laughs> it's not that I'm a skeptic or anything, Harry. <laughs> we just have to be clear. 100% of us are Zelensky Democrats. 50% of them yeah. are Putin Republicans. That's it. That's, that's the clearest way to state <laughs> we're both sides. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. 
Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. Today's spirited debate centers around a recipe for a timeless cocktail from the 1800s, the Old Fashioned, where the question still stands whether to use rye whiskey or bourbon. The original recipe calls for bourbon, so we've already scored one point for bourbon there. As for the specific brand, the rule of thumb is if you wouldn't sip it by itself, it has no home in the glass of your old fashioned. In our other hand, we've got rye whiskey, which introduces a peppery bite that's a little bit spicier and less sweet than bourbon. Again, if we take a note from history, we learn that the original recipe called for sugar. It was actually first defined in print as spirit, bitters, sugar, and water. So you could definitely supplement the less sweet rye option and use simple syrup instead of a muddled sugar cube for a balanced twist. The jury's still out when it comes to a verdict in the rye versus bourbon debate, but we do know this. Whichever one you go with, you'll want something at least 90 proof or higher so your drink stands up to dilution from the melting ice. From all of us here at Total Wine & More, cheers to bourbon and rye. And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. I want to just take a few minutes. This is my old stomping grounds, but also uh, the congressman who's a former prosecutor. It's been a seismic week in so many ways, and in some ways it's sort of swamped. But big things are going on at the Department of Justice and the 1-6 Committee. And I just want to serve up a kind of DOJ question. The department playbook from the start has been, can we go up the ladder impose serious enough penalties to get people to turn. That's what they need to do. And, you know, guess what? They've got their first trial this week where they got someone to turn and they got a plea to seditious conspiracy, the highest charge they've done so far. In that sense, it is really working out according to the basic plan of 1-6. But what it's not done anything of, they haven't penetrated either the political sphere or even the sort of netherworld of Roger Stone and such, who I think are a bridge between them. Let's say that this is where it ends and they do a bang up job on all the domestic terrorist stuff and one six itself, but never actually make it to the Trump level. Is that enough? Politically, if you don't put at least one skin up on the side of the barn here, you will get more of this. You want to check the momentum of people who are plotting to overthrow this government. You have to put somebody in jail. An unpunished coup attempt is a, is a training exercise. And so unless you get a Roger Stone or even an Ali Alexander or Alex Jones or a Steve Bannon or John Eastman or any of these other mooks that were trying to, to pull this thing off, it's a mistake to think of them as like slightly comical figures. This is a sinister thing. And somebody's got to take a hit or they will just laugh it off because, look, Trump is exactly like Vladimir Putin in a lot of ways. But in one particular way, he's willing to let cannon fodder be just that. He's willing to let as many of these low-level minions and these idiots who saw this on Facebook, you know, the guy that took a crap in the Capitol Dome, he's willing to let all of those guys go down. When it gets to his family or it gets to his close associates or it gets to people who can tell more stories about him, that's when the pain starts. And I think you have to do that as a country or you will lose the ability to check the momentum of this authoritarian movement. That is the question. As a country, 
Do you agree with Rick that that's a national imperative? From our perspective, and I speak sort of as the media, until obviously what's been happening in Europe, we had been covering January 6th quite heavily, right? A lot of the day-to-day developments. Um, I think that in order for it to resonate with the public, I know there's the reasons of history that you want to do this and you want it on the record, right? But we need public hearings and they need to be sooner rather than later. And they need to be compelling so that people watch and people engage. No matter how high up it goes, of course, I understand what would really make the big mark. But presuming that you're not going to get there with Trump, it needs to be something that people can grasp onto and understand with a very specific narrative. And I know they've interviewed thousands of people. They're getting there. But I think that is really what we need, because I think people get lost in the details. They get lost in the day to day of who's subpoenaed and who's doing what and who really knew what. And I think that the story can get lost in the details. So from where we sit purely as presenting these conclusions and these realities to the public, we really need a compelling public hearings. We need them soon. I agree. I would also say that from my work on the second impeachment and the civil lawsuit I have, I'm pretty convinced that you're going to see evidence that only one person in the world could have convened the crowd in the way that they arrived and then so violently attacked the Capitol. And that, that was Donald Trump. And, and to kind of put, for as Aaron said, for history's sake, put that question to bed. He was the only person that could have done that. And if he wasn't there, it wouldn't have looked like that and they wouldn't have attacked in that way. Two, on the criminal side, we shouldn't treat him more harshly because he is Donald Trump and he's despicable in every way, but we shouldn't treat him less harshly because he's a former president and we're afraid of what it means to indict a president. And and I fear that that is in the calculus and it can't be in the calculus. I understand why they're worried about what it means for our country when we're the first country to cross that Rubicon. But we just became a democracy that didn't have a peaceful transition of power, right? Like, and we've always had said we were going to have a peaceful transition of power. So maybe it's time that former president has to be indicted and and we shouldn't not do it just because we haven't done it before. Third, to Aaron's point, I I think we also have to show the public that if we do nothing, as Rick said, this will happen again and they will be successful. And this could be the last time any of us actually see an election that has a transition where the outcome was accepted. And and so those are my fears. I, I think they've got enough evidence now and I'm just as eager as Aaron to see it animated for the American public. And by the way, with all the cross currents and obstacles, kudos to you and your 10 colleagues for this civil lawsuit against the former president. All right, we're just about out of time. Have a minute for our final Talking Five feature. It's been a unbelievable 10 days for President Zelensky, who has been named, among other things, the Jewish Churchill. So a movie, I think, is inevitable. The question is, <laughs> who should play him in the movie version? Five words or fewer. Jeremy Renner. Okay. Won't see it in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> My call is Dominic Cooper. Aaron? I will go with Ed Norton. I like it. I like it. The son of a prosecutor. And out yeah. of retirement for me... Unknown to many, technically a Jew, Daniel Day-Lewis. All right, we are out of time, I'm sorry to say. This has been a really great discussion. Thank you very much to Aaron Burnett, Rick Wilson, and Congressman Eric Swalwell. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. 
A reminder that we are available on the Spectrum News app. The app provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Fed-related content. You can check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't outtakes or just ad-free episodes, though we do have those there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. Just in the last few days, we posted discussions with international law expert and prosecutor Alex Whiting about the prospects of Putin's actually being prosecuted for war crimes, a conversation with Daniel R. Alonzo about the implosion of the Manhattan DA's criminal case against the Trump Organization, and a Q&A with me where I answered listener questions for an hour, which was a lot of fun, among other things. So there's really a wealth of great stuff at Patreon. You can go look at it to see what we've got and decide if you might like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, Associate Producer Olivia Henriksen, Assistant Producer Matt McArdle, Sound Engineering by Adam Macias. David Lieberman and Rosie Dawn Griffin are our contributing writers and production assistants by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to Pine Grove's Evan Stevens Hall for explaining family farms. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.